Roger Penske is an icon in the auto industry, and he's this year's recipient of the 2019 SAE Foundation's Industry Leadership of the Year Award. On this week's show, he discusses what keeps him inspired and the industry's move into autonomy, electrification, and mobility services. Underwriting for the production of Autoline this week has been provided by RSM. for challenges specific to your business by working with trusted advisors who help turn obstacles into opportunities. Experience the power of being understood. RSM, Audit, Tax and Consulting for the Middle Market. Coming to you from the Weston Book Cadillac in Detroit, Michigan, on location at the annual SAE Foundation Award Banquet, here's your host, John McElroy. Roger, one of the things that amazes me is you're a wealthy guy. You're now in your 80s. You don't have to work whatsoever. The fact that you do, you go to work every single day, every weekday certainly, and you're busy on the weekends as well, tells me you must love what you do. And what I want to know is what inspires you to keep on working? Well, I, I think I really got to go back uh, you know, to my dad many years ago. And he told me that effort equals results. In fact, I carry a coin. It's a good luck coin. I always carry it at the races, so I thought I'd carry it tonight to be sure it was good luck for me tonight. But uh, he told me effort equals results. And when I think about you know, my business career and you know, what, what it stands for to lead people, it really makes a big difference because to me, my mission and his mission he taught me was, was about integrity, was about ethics, and it was about transparency. He said, the most important thing you'll deal with is people. And that people has rung with me for so many years. And you think about, we're going to Indianapolis here in a couple of weeks. Uh, we'll have over 600 years of experience in the pits, in the garage for the race. And I think that continuity has made a difference. And that's what given, given, gives me every day a leadership memo to say, keep training, keep going, and supporting your people. Roger, what do you think is your, your greatest asset? It's by people, for sure, the 64,000 team members that we have that come to work every day to support our brand. Penske Corporation is a giant corporation. I think you do something like $26 billion in sales. You've got businesses in automotive and trucking and logistics and manufacturing and racing. How do you keep up with all this? Well, again, uh, you know, with technology today, I think that uh, I've got the ability to look at uh, all our sales every day at every location. I can even drill down, John, if we sold you a car today, how much we made on that car, so remember that. So talk about technology. <laughs> so it's deep, it's great, but again, what I've tried to do is I don't want to go to the final meeting. I want to go to the pre-meeting to understand what's going on in the decision-making. So I'm a guy on the ground, and I feel that uh, pushing assets to our people, I think if you look at... Uh, our locations that every leader has assets. He understands the return on those assets and what's expected. But to me, it's customer focused. And it's a business that I want to stay in. And I think the business to business relationships that we've developed over the years have made us successful. It's been amazing to see how you've grown the Penske Corp over the years. And you've known how to get into businesses. But what I also respect is you know when it's time to get out of them. 
usually for a huge profit, too. So what's the secret to doing that? We never talk about the bad ones, do we? That's right. <laughs> we all know about that, don't we? That's always sometime we trip and fall. But I think, uh, you know, over the years, I had the opportunity to become a Chevrolet dealer, you know, back in February of 65. And I had a racing career. I had a chance to go to Indianapolis to take my test. But I couldn't get the, the week or two weeks off. But, uh, you know, that gave me the opportunity uh, to become a businessman and loving the automobile business as I did. Uh, that gave me a start. But as I look down the road, I look for underperforming and undervalued businesses. And I think of, you know, really three different opportunities that I had. Certainly one uh, is when we bought the Hertz Truck Division, you know, back in the mid-'80s. And folks, remember, interest rates at that time was 19%. So think about going and buying a business. And today the money is, what, 2 or 3% a big difference. But we had the opportunity to go, and we had a small leasing company, and we worked out with Hertz where we've become only a 35% owner. But I said that I told Frank Olson, some of you know him from Hertz, I said, Frank, don't worry about your 65 because I'm worrying about my 35% of this business. And, of course, we went on to buy that business, and today uh, we're operating over 300,000 vehicles here in the U.S. And I think that was all about people and the opportunity because they had decided to focus certainly on the rent-a-car business. And then Detroit Diesel came up. Uh, General Motors was divesting of their non-core businesses, you know, back in the 80s. And they had an opportunity to go with John Deere. It didn't come together. And because we were a distributor in the metro New York and New Jersey area, we had a chance to discuss really what was the future of our distributorship and, again, a partnership. And this, John, I think goes through pretty much a common thread to our business as partners. And we became a partner with GM. And we took that business, uh, remember, we had a corporation we set up with $125 million to take over this business. Cat had $25 billion, and Cummins had $2.5 billion. It was amazing. We had the best people, and I would say this to the GM people are here tonight, that the engineering team there, was, we had the best engine. All we had to know how to sell it. We took that engine, and within two and a half years, we went from 3% market share to 31 to become a leader. And I think that you see the, the plant on Redford today, it's, it's a home run. And then, of course, my really fun was the retail auto business. So we had a chance to buy a small United Auto Group that was on the New York Stock Exchange. Think about it, it had a value of $100 million. We've been able to take that business through good people and grow it to over 500,000 vehicles over the last, uh, since 1999. And today we have a company that's in uh, five continents and nine countries. So to me, looking at our people, partnerships, and looking at undervalued and opportunity, I think has given me the opportunity to get where I am today. So it's been terrific. Years ago, and you're going to remember this guy, Gary Dickinson. He was uh, the head of Delco Electronics. And he told me a story that he did a sponsorship deal. I think it was worth like $10 million or something like that for your Indy cars. But the real telling part of the story is he said, we did that deal, me and Roger, meaning Gary talking about you, with a handshake. No lawyers, no contracts. And I was astounded by that. I've never heard of that in business. And I'd just like to understand some of your philosophy of how you approach business deals. Well, you know, handshake is all you need from us. And I hope that the people we do business with, it's the same thing. Obviously, the, the lawyers... Uh, Sometimes I call them sales prevention, just for the lawyers in the room here. <laughs> so we try, to, we try to do things on a handshake, but uh, 
No, this is how we've operated. And, you know, we've had franchises with many, many different worldwide companies. And I'm not, I can't remember the day we pulled out from the door and said, let's look at the franchise agreement. Because if we're not performing, we know it. And I think we have to step up and do our job. But uh, it's a philosophy that we have. Uh, you know, we're a very flat organization. Uh, we want our people to be heard. We want to, as I go to India, I think about the truck driver. I think the guy that's putting air in the tires, they're just as important as the driver. And the day we forget that, we tend to sit in meetings and look at PowerPoints. But I'm a guy on the ground, and I think that Gary knew that, and we knew that we could deliver for him, and that's how we started. Team Penske has been an amazing organization. IndyCar, NASCAR, Australian supercars, IMSA sports cars, Can-Am, Trans-Am, even Formula One. Team Penske has won over 500 victories in all these racings, an incredible record. Uh, so I wonder why is motor racing such an important part of your organization? I guess it all started, uh, you know, back in 1951 when my dad took me to Indy. And uh, I guess from that point on, uh, you know, I never stopped. It was, uh, you know, part of my day, part of my life, and it's been that way for so long. So motorsports, as we've said, is the common thread through our company, and the teamwork and the execution has made a difference. That's really our mission, and I think that, uh, to me, uh, the racing part of it has developed how many business partners around the globe. It, it makes a big difference when you can win with somebody's brand, but also it puts pressure on you. I tell people it's my quarterly earnings every, every weekend when you think about, uh, think about your business, but uh, it's made a big difference, and it's, a, it's the backbone of our organization. You were a pretty good driver yourself. I, I didn't know the story about that you were invited to uh, try to get into the, the Indy 500, but why did you decide not to pursue a driving career and get into racing and then into business? Well, you know, I had the opportunity uh, to drive at Indy, but I couldn't get off time to take my test. And uh, then had the opportunity to become a Chevrolet dealer. And guess what? Uh, Jim Rathman was a driver at Indy. He was a Chevrolet dealer in, down in Florida. And the GM people came to me and said, look, if you're going to be a, if you're going to be a, a dealer, you need to not be racing. So it was an easy decision for me. But probably the most critical one was that uh, I needed $50,000 to, uh, to, to buy the dealership with some support uh, from the banks. And I didn't have it, obviously. So I went to my dad, who was retired at that point. And I remember going to the bank with him. And he took $50,000 out of his account, and he said, Roger, if you lose this, I'll go back to work. So I can tell you that uh, the story is over at that point. So I was really motivated, you can be sure. Was it your father, or who really inspired you to get into the business side? Well, uh, I, I think it's your parents. Uh, you know, I, I grew up uh, in, a, in a good family. They provided me an education. But, you know, my dad, you know, had a paper out in the morning, paper out in the afternoon. But to me, uh, it was about setting a goal and what you wanted. And I think... Uh, you know, that really came from my father. And when I think about some of the things that are important in our company, and today, think about uh, all of the CSI, customer satisfaction information that we look at every day, don't we? Every single day, Google, someone else has an alert on what you're doing. In the mid-70s, John, I used to send 100 repair orders to my father in Cleveland. And he'd call customers in New York and say, hey, this is Jay Penske. Were you happy with your service? You think about that. With all the talk today, as far as customer satisfaction, this is kind of the DNA that came out of dealing with my dad and what he, he taught me. And uh, I'll never forget it. And, uh, you know, you, you just can't say enough about your parents. And I was fortunate to 
have two people that cared about me. I got in trouble. There's no question. We all did. I remember I had a motorcycle, got in an accident. And, uh, you know, it was all those things you got to go through. I hear some of the stories of, of my grandkids and what goes on with them. But uh, we're all the same, just having fun. <laughs> There's so much change going on in the auto industry right now. <clears throat> this move into mobility services, autonomous cars, electric cars, and all that. Well, let's take them one at a time. Autonomous cars, where, where do you see all this going? Well, I see one thing that the, the auto industry is, is spending billions of dollars on autonomous, and <clears throat> I'm not sure I'll be alive when I can jump in an autonomous car here and go out to the airport and get on a plane. I think it's gonna be a while, but I do say, I've seen it work. Uh, we, we provide engines for the big mine haul trucks out in Australia, these 300 ton payload trucks. And from Perth, Australia, autonomously they can run these big trucks in the mines in Australia. It's amazing. Better productivity, better safety, all the things that the people are working for. But to me, it has to be ring-fenced at this point. I think we'll have parts of the city and areas, and I'm sure the people here, uh, Dan and the people from GM, will tell us long-term how that's going to work. But, you know, my concern longer-term is what's the commercial payback? What's the commercial payback? And to me, you know, we have investors in our companies, and we, we think about uh, autonomous, and we look at Uber, and we look at Lyft. Uh, we've seen a couple of public offerings here in the last 30 days. These stocks are down double digit. You know why? Because the investment community is not sure the story is true. What's the commercial value be? And I always learned to run my business to build and make a profit. I don't think there's anybody in this room that doesn't have that as a mission, correct? So I, I excuse me. <laughs> Applause from the audience yeah. on that statement. But, but I, think, I think the important thing is, if we step back and look, there is no question uh, Uber and Lyft and some of these other ride hailing and things that we're looking at is very convenient. It works. But think about today, it's, it's cheaper than the normal transportation. It's better than owning a car. But this company, these are going to have to raise prices. They can say the drivers are going to come out of the cars, but when they raise prices, we're going to have to look at the total cost of ownership, aren't we, at that point? So I think there's, there's going to be another story coming on this longer term, and with Silicon Valley and some, some of these big investors are going to start to see what is the value, because I grew up on, on building a profit and giving a share back to my, to my uh, certainly my investors. So. Uh, Autonomous vehicles, I'm sure they're there. I've seen them work on the industrial side, and I'm anxious to be able to experience myself in an area where it can be commercially viable. Yeah, how about electric cars? What are your, your thoughts on that? I think that uh, you know, electric mobility, electric cars, uh, I've driven some. It's an amazing experience, and many of you people are golfers here, I'm sure. How many want a gasoline golf cart, right? Not many, do you? So that just, I always use that as an example. But certainly the torque, the experience is amazing. But uh, the investment is, is monumental that I see. Uh, the Teslas had a, certainly a, a first-comer advantage. Again, not profitable. But as I look at, at the electric vehicles, and, and most of the vehicle big investments are coming at the premium level because we still don't have the range that we need. 400 miles, I think, probably is the right spot longer term. But the commitment there, I think, is right. And the infrastructure that the big three has, and certainly the German manufacturers and Japanese, 
You know, they have a captive finance company. They have dealers. They have a dealer network. And, John, that's what's going to make this work longer term, residual values, leasing, because if you don't have that and you can have three or 400,000 vehicles on there but no dealer network, I think the winners are going to be the people coming in the market in the next inning, not the ones that are there now. So I, I feel it's a great product. Uh, I'm anxious to see the battery costs come down. I think if you talk to people in this room, battery costs are critical. But the combination of the technology that's there and the investment, I think we're going to see that going to be a, a big part of the, of the industry. But when you look at the industry last year, I think there were 2.3 2 million premium luxury cars. And if we took that times seven, say it's two and a half, it's 18 million cars. And today we have 280 million here in the U.S. So if we took seven years of electric vehicles to two and a half, it would still be, we'd have 260 industrial, you know, our, our normal combustion engines. And so it's going to take time. Is it going to be 10% or 15? It'll be driven by government regulation, certainly. We, I talked to someone the other day, and they talked about CO2. I think if you went to the Detroit Auto Show and you asked the people coming in the door, what's CO2, right? People are not even talking about in this country. So we're mandated certain things. You know, we talked about 10 years ago, we had NHTSA on safety and airbags, and we had fuel economy. Now we have other regulations. So I think uh, it's going to take time, but I think we're going to have a good product there long term. Let's talk about some of the topics here for this event tonight. STEM education. Um, where do you see this going, and what's your involvement in it, and why? Well, uh, let's just look tonight, the, the two presenters tonight, and looking at cybersecurity and, and people that are you know, five or six years old showing us out there today. It's amazing to me, because we didn't think about that maybe when we were at that time. But as I talked about Detroit, you know, there is no question that, that we are now really focused on education. And, and STEM, and, and certainly the engineering field is so important. As technology is more important as we go forward, we need more people in that funnel. And today, fr from my perspective, uh, you look at the city of Detroit, and uh, certainly the workforce board that's been put together to bring people into, the, into, the, into Detroit to work, and the, the promise we have you know, for people to, if they can go through high school here in Detroit, will help them get into a advanced degree or even into a bachelor degree. But to me, what we need to do is understand that people all want to go to New York or they want to go to the West Coast. But when you think about the auto industry, it's about technology. And when we went to Indianapolis uh, early on and we turned a lap at 180 miles an hour, we're going 200 miles down the straightaway. Well, Guys turned laps at Indianapolis today at 228 miles an hour, probably going 235 on the straightaway and 200, maybe 25 in the corner. So that's what's going on with technology. And without STEM and certainly engineering technology and math, I think that we're going to get behind. And we talk about the technology in, in America. But if we can take the basics like we see with STEM and, the, and what the foundation has done to support these through their scholarships and things, I think we're going to be in great shape. And, and we're a big supporter of that. Uh, the CEO council uh, here in the city of Detroit, uh, what they've done, they've taken uh, Randolph. They've taken Wright Park School. These are two technical schools in Detroit and committed $20 million so we can have more skilled tradespeople and people, electricians, and things that are going to go forward. We need these in the plants. I'm sure the people here tonight, we need those people in, in our really in our workforce. And uh, if we do that and commit to that, but each one of us have got to take that on individually and collectively. 
it's not just in Detroit, it's uh, across the United States. <clears throat> How do you see us uh, progressing in that regard? That is, growing a new generation that's got the tools, as it were, to really get into the industry as it gets into all this new technology. Well, I think we've got to communicate in the schools and show people what the opportunities are. I think uh, as, we, as we're looking, and with, with unemployment today, you know, under 5%, you know, our workforce, you know, really it's tight the quality of the workforce. So what we have to do across the country is work in all the different cities. The different companies have got to commit that. We're doing the same thing in Australia. We're helping to put together a, a really a school there for technicians that we can help bring them to Adelaide as they build their submarines. We've got to do this as individuals and companies, and I see that as part of my challenge as we go forward. How can other people get involved and make this happen? Well, I think, uh, you know, support your city. Uh, as we've done, as, as many of the companies have here, uh, I think, uh, you know, adopt a school. You know, we're adopting neighborhoods now with the mayor as we go forward here. I think we have to, as engineers and people who are in these businesses, I think co-op students, the ability to have interns. We need to do that. I remember I worked as an intern uh, at Alcoa in the foundry back, and then I went to, went to Lehigh and went to work for Alcoa. So that got me into the business. So I think this touching and feeling is going to be important. And I think that's got to be done nose to nose with these people longer term, or these kids. And I think what we saw tonight is someone has got to turn that light on to say, I want to go in the engineering area. I want to be a leader. I love technology. And I want to make a difference in the country. I keep hearing, too, uh, not just internships, but apprenticeships that can directly lead to a job. Well, I think apprenticeships are key. And, and what we have in, in, the, in the leadership program in Detroit, you know, during the summer, the mayor's put a program together where we can have interns, interns come to us and work during the summer. What we try to do in our company, I want to look at the people that are coming in and can we place them within the organization. It's not by having your friend or someone else come. I think it's got to be focused. And today, the human resource part of this thing is so important. We're finding out that our ability to hire the right people starts at the connection. We've got to be there. And I would say in our organization, we work hard to get in and hard to leave. And you think about the number of people that we have, and we, we always are trying to promote from within. So starting this at the base is really key. I like what you say, uh, hard to get in and hard to get out. I, I like that approach of hiring people. Let's look down the road, five years, 10 years, 25 years down the road. What kind of opportunities do you see for young people getting into the automotive industry? I think that uh, the industry is, is exciting. Uh, I think that we've been, some people in school have kind of taken their eye off the ball on the, on the industry. They're into, in, into what's going on in Silicon Valley. They're what's going on maybe on the financial markets. But I think there's going to be a tremendous opportunity. More technology, more commitment to technology, and certainly the requirements for us, you know, whether it's uh, flying cars, you know, you know, we got drones, now all these things, it's all going to be tied in because we as businesses can't just look at the core business anymore. We're going to have to invest, and you think about whether it's EV or it's autonomous, we're going to have to make those bets. It's going to take great people to do that, and I would assume that, uh, to me, that uh, an engineer at, at one of the big three will be a great job long term. And the opportunity to move from powertrain into design, you follow me, into service, you know, even into the marketing side, make a big difference. So uh, I think it's a bright future, personally. And uh, I guess maybe I, I was hooked at an early age, as you know. So to me, I would say uh, it's going to be an opportunity for sure. 
We've got quite a few young people in the audience here. You saw them out earlier uh, showing what they're doing, all the way from grade school through high school up into the, the collegiate level. What would you tell them as they may ponder getting into the automotive industry? What words of advice would you give them? Well, you know, I go back to what my dad told me, um, you know, look at your future. Look, what do you like to do? And I think everybody's been in a car, and there's got to be the opportunity to connect. And I wish I had a formula to say how we can connect every young person to the industry, but it's going to take, certainly, the recruiting is going to have to be more direct. And I think, as you talked about internships, to get people in. And I mean hundreds. You think about in Europe today, we might have a workforce at one of our dealerships there that has 120 people. We might have 30 apprentices. Think about that. You know, 30 percent. 20% are apprentices, so I think we're going to have to look at those types of programs and give people an opportunity because you got to get on, ride, get on the horse before you can ride it. And I think that's what we have to do. So I would say a much better intersection, you know, for, for the auto companies with the talent out there. Obviously, the, the universities as we do our recruiting and other areas, but uh, uh, I think the, uh, it's going to be up to us as companies. And uh, they don't come to us. There's people today, the same thing as we look at uh, in our business. We've got to be proactive. And if you're going to build your business, you've got to be proactive with your human capital. You know, one thing I like that you touched on, too, is not just uh, technical kind of jobs from a white-collar standpoint, but also getting into the vocational jobs. Well, I think uh, vocational, when you, when you think about an associate degree and the opportunity, today, if we sat and looked at our business, which we have dealerships and truck leasing, et cetera, we probably need three to 400 technicians, three to 400. So think about the rest of the country. So we need to drive, you know, that type of skill in our organizations. And we're doing that with training, training, training. In many cases, uh, you know, we, 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 we hit a dead end and we don't get the people. The body shop business today, when you think about the car business, you know, the people we have are growing older and to get anyone to enter that business. And with the cars more complex, you open the hood of a car, you can't find the engine because of the encapsulation right today. And think about that when you bring it in and it's a thirty dollars or $40,000 uh, collision. These are the skills that we're going to have to build, and it's going to have to come from some of these schools. Remember, you know, I took a, a mechanics course in high school. You know, they don't have those anymore. You know, they're gone. You, you have some of these schools uh, that we have. Uh, UTI is a good one that provides you know, people to learn, you know, the automotive trade. But again, they're few and far behind between. And to me, you know, we're going to have to support those. We need that skill group. That's why this program here in Detroit at Randolph that we're supporting, and certainly Bright House, teaching those skilled trades, electricians, et cetera, is so important. Real good. Roger, thanks for sharing all that information, insight, and look back on history and look into the future. Ladies and gentlemen, Roger Penske. Thank you. Underwriting for the production of Autoline this week has been provided by RSM. Prepare for challenges specific to your business by working with trusted advisors who help turn obstacles into opportunities. Experience the power of being understood. RSM, audit, tax and consulting for the middle market.